This is the State of Things from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Frank Stacio, dipping into the archive as I move into retirement. Today we remember a conversation from June of 2018 with surfer and philosopher Maya Deary. For Maya, sitting still was never much of an option. Her teachers had her sit out in the halls to keep her from bothering other kids. And as soon as she had her driver's license, she skipped school and escaped to the forest. Her awe for the natural world led her to a career as a photographer and later award-winning professor at Guilford College. I love the fact that she made it her mission to subvert the education system and essentially force students to learn outside whatever the weather. We talked about that and the fact that she chased a lifelong dream and learned to serve. And since that first wave, she has taken her educational mission to a whole new level. She created a program called Waves to Wisdom to offer coaching and surf tips and combines them with a deeper critical and philosophical insight. I began our conversation by asking her to talk about growing up in Durham with her mom. I grew up in Parkwood, a tiny little subdivision in southeastern Durham County, uh, and there was a tributary of Northeast Creek right down the hill from my neighborhood, and it was really a magical place for me as a child, and, uh, and I was drawn to water from an early age. My mom taught at Duke, and so I think this kind of combination of the ideas that, that she loved to talk about and the kind of mud-sucking magic of getting lost in, in these creeks uh, was was really formative for me. And your mom really encouraged that. She was kind of a free spirit in many ways. Yes. She um, she was a very clean hippie of a sort. And, uh, <laughs> yes. uh, and she, uh, she really was of the sort of the Rousseauian bent when it came to raising children. She thought that if she left us to our own devices that we would turn into fabulous people. And you got, and you did, but there was a, there's a, there's a journey, right? There's a, there's a path to that. And it includes some difficult times in school. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. The, you know, the one requirement of being an excellent student is, is to sit still and be quiet. And those were the two things that I was just never very good at. Uh, And I had, um, you know, I I had really good teachers. I was very lucky. Mm -hmm. Uh, Went to a neighborhood school that I could walk to. Um, But it was always a challenge. And I think I I disconnected from my education in ways that as an adult, I realized were, you know, unfortunate, um, because I am, am a lover of ideas. But the world of ideas had this prerequisite Mm. of stillness, and, and it was not necessary. So really. this is well, what you just said. This is interesting. I want to unpack it and make sure I understood it because you said you disconnected in some ways from the world of ideas. In other words, the association with school and all that it offered and the, the discomfort of being disciplined and thrown out and all that sort of thing made you stop, made you start thinking, well, I don't even like this education stuff. Let's throw these books away. Well, it wasn't, it, I didn't go so far as to throw the books away, but I was left to books without guidance. Yeah. And so it was, you know, I mean, it, I think education is a, is a, is a universal right, certainly in a culture with, with our resources. And it, it was, I think, unfortunate that I, thought that all of this world of flowers and mud and creatures uh, was somehow disconnected from Mm. my science classes and my English classes. I was much older when I realized, oh, wait a minute, all of that abstract knowledge has everything to do with this mud and this rapid and this flower. But what was happening at the time? I mean, how were you acting? Were you acting out in class and no, I, I was not. I, I was and, and still am, at sometimes to my peril, uh, a good girl. Um, mm. So I did my best to behave mm. uh, as long as I had to until I got that driver's license. And then, you know, the, I absented myself 
just about as much as I could get away with. You know, what's your mother doing through all of this? Is, is, is she aware of this? Or you're, you're not getting in too much trouble. You got kicked out, I guess, once, maybe sent out into the hall. Or I got sent out on the hall in the hallway all the time. But yeah. that, that was actually third grade, and my, that teacher was extremely nice. And she knew yeah. that out in the hallway I could find people to talk to. So she would send me outside <laughs> so you want to talk, where I was talk free to talk. Exactly. I have a class to teach in <laughs> yes. here. And charming as you are, you're not helping. Uh, was your yes. mother aware of this? And was this any kind of a conversation at home or, or did, it, did it not come up? Oh, no, it was a conversation. She, she actually wrote me notes that I could keep in my wallet, excusing me from class if I ever got in trouble. Um, I think she really understood yeah. that I needed the kind of movement and freedom that I just couldn't get in public school. And, I, you know, she wasn't too worried about me as long as I, my grades didn't suffer. She thought that I would figure it out. That's interesting. And you grew up, this is interesting, too, because you grew up uh, with, your, you didn't realize that you weren't growing up with your biological father. Is that true? I did not realize that. Yeah. That is correct. Yes. My mother married a man when I was two years old who I thought was my biological father until my mid-30s when uh, a, a person who had joined the family who was a sleuth, let's say, uh, <laughs> uncovered this. And, uh, and then my mom told me. What was that? Did that have any impact on you? What was that like? You know, the poor guy uh, died of a heart attack when he was 36 years old. And I and and we he and I had never bonded, which was mysterious to me. This because, would be the father. This would be your mother's husband. This is my mother's you, husband. Yeah. Yes, and and I he seemed to have bonded with my younger brother and sister, and I didn't quite understand that. But in my thirties, when I figured out that he was their biological father, then I understood it. Mm. And the fact that he had passed away so young and that I was no longer tied to that genetic heritage, the whole thing really came as kind of a relief. A relief. A relief. Why? Well, because I didn't want to face an early death oh. uh, or think that I was less lovable than my two siblings for some inherent reason. And so that, that was really, uh, it was revelatory in a good way. So let's go back now to this this driver's license, too. I want to hear about that and the fact that the minute you get it, you're off in Duke Forest. You're hanging around Duke Forest, right? Oh, my goodness. Yes, the Corstian Division in particular. Uh, and it was... Uh, it was an answer to, I think, my first kind of existential heartbreak. When I was a young child, uh, we lived on this strip of woods that when I was, I think I was six or seven when my mom first let me just go into the woods by myself. And I would go farther and farther as I got older. And I was probably nine or 10 when I got to the other end of the woods, which in my mind had stretched to the Amazon. I mean, this was this <laughs> primordial forest. And it was just a strip of woods in a subdivision yeah. after that. And I was really longing for that kind of magical place again that, that was bigger than my imagination so that my imagination could grow. And, and when I discovered Duke Forest after I got my license, I found that kind of place again. What was that like when you were going there those first few times? In other words, the, the moment it captivated you or those moments – what was it like for you? Was it meditative? Were you having all kinds of curiosity about sort of how does this plant eat and where does it, you know, and what's the ecology or, you know, or is it more meditative for you? Um, I would say it's somewhere in between. I've, I've always been 
so visually oriented mm. and just the the endless prospects and going around bends and corners and looking up and down and you know lying in the creek and seeing what that looked like with one eye underwater and you know suddenly there were all of these things to discover that that just seemed unending in that way that had been so powerful when I was a child and so here are the forests of the uh, of the southeast here in North Carolina and then your grandparents retired to California and you went to visit them one summer right? I went every summer Every summer. Yes, I think from six to the, the history is a little unclear, but I think it was from six through ten those those ages, and they had uh, retired to Del Mar, California, and they had a house. If you went out on the driveway, and I stood on my tippy toes, I could just see the the Pacific, and and that got into my blood in a way. It it was really. Uh, a place was so exotic. Yeah. Huge fat plums fell from a tree in the backyard, and there was kelp, which to me was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. Uh, and there were surfers. That was the first time I saw surfers, and I longed to learn how to do that. There were just boys and men, as far as I could tell, but mm. I didn't see any reason I couldn't go out there. My grandparents saw a lot of reasons I couldn't go out there. And <laughs> so you did ask them. You did I ask. asked repeatedly. Yeah. I'm certain I drove them. Yes, crazy. <laughs> said no. Yes. But a very different environment, certainly, than the forest. I mean, you know, you can see as far as the eye can see, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's just a, it's a much different uh, uh, landscape for the eye, and yet it still drew you in that same oh, absolutely. way because of what you could imagine, I suppose. Yes, totally. And and I think it. Uh, I've always enjoyed change, and uh, I have a really soft spot for obvious metaphor, uh, and I think I even did, even though I didn't recognize it as a child. And, and so, you know, distant horizons and, you know, sea, sea changes and, uh, you know, tides, high tides mm. and low tides. I mean, all of that flux was just intoxicating. And my grandmother was a painter and, and I think really wanted me to become a painter mm. and, and discovered very quickly that standing in front of a canvas for hours was not something that was within my capacity. And so she got me my first camera. And so I, that was where I discovered photography, too, as a child. And um, what, what did that do for you? Well, it's interesting. I think photography allowed me, especially as I got older, uh, a way to fit in and be the good girl that I felt hmm. drawn to be, but also to be this alternative self that seemed to have no place uh, because it was it was a way to you know, be uh, somebody who just stared, just ran around and stared, and which is what I wanted to do when I grew up. As far as I could tell when I was a kid, I just thought, well, I just want to run around and see cool things and then look at them really hard, which did not seem to be a job until <laughs> until I, you know, thought, oh, well, if I make a product, if I can be productive in this staring, then maybe this could this could be a thing and it it might just save me. I'm remembering my conversation with surfer, photographer, and educator Maya Deary. And we will talk more about seeing the paradox that Maya raised just now, the desire to stare and hold the world in deep contemplation while at the same time having to be on the move. And she tells us about that first wave that she experienced just ahead on the State of Things from North Carolina Public Radio, a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. This is the State of Things. I'm Frank Stacio, looking back at some of the more memorable conversations I've had as host of this program over the past 15 years or so. I loved Maya Deary's passion for her work and her ability to innovate. Maya is a surfer, photographer, and award-winning teacher. She taught at Guilford College for 17 years and designed curricula to connect students with waterways. She had many challenges in traditional schools, not least the inability to sit still. 
In this segment, I began by asking her how she navigated the growing awareness of her sexual identity. Well, I, I really didn't, was not, this was pre-Ellen. It was not mm-hmm. accessible to me at all that, um, that I was a lesbian, but I liked girls, you know, loved them, as a matter of fact. And that was profoundly confusing. And, and my mother had taught in, she taught essentially women's studies classes before there was really such a thing. Mm-hmm. And she was determined that her children, and especially her daughter, were going to feel like they were active agents, that they were in charge of their sexuality. So I had copies of this scholarly journal called Contraceptive Technologies on my bookshelf from age 10. And so I was confused as to why I wasn't more interested in all of that. And um, and, and it really literally did not occur to me um, until... I was much older, in my late 20s, as a matter of fact. Well, talk more about that, because I think that the story is instructive, because you ended up, you did fall fall for someone in high school, right? You had, and, and so talk about that journey for you and the way that played itself out. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, I, I think I was in love with, you know, a girl in junior high and then a different one yeah. in high school. And What um, were you telling yourself, forgive me for interrupting at sure. this point, but what were you telling yourself at that point if, if you didn't think that... That's what was happening. I was just telling myself, I think that I just liked my friends a lot. I was, you know, exceptionally loyal and virtuous in some way. I'm sure it was an upwards interpretation, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, it uh, so, you know, there was this uh, young woman, this girl and, and, you know, beautiful, brilliant, acerbic wit. uh, And I got to be good friends with her. And in the process of getting to be good friends with her, spent more time with her family and uh, then got to be good friends with her brother and ultimately, not ultimately, but eventually moved in with him and, and we got married. And he um, is just the maybe the best human. I mean, he, he's really an exceptional uh, representation of the genre. And, and he was he's so loving and good and generous. And the time that I spent with him was, I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. Uh, and then when I was 28, I met a woman with whom things became clear. And so we had to get divorced, which was traumatic. And mm. yeah, just a little bit, you know, it was, I it was very sorry that I had to put everybody through that. But in retrospect, I'm not sorry for any of it. Mm. It was, it was a, it was a story of the times, I think. What was it that made it so revealing and so obvious to you that this was a woman who you loved and who you would even go through a divorce with? What do you think happened in that moment? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I think it, she knew she knew that the minute that she met me that I was gay, and mm-hmm. uh, and and we started a relationship. And and I think I mean, my powers of denial are and have always been mighty, but at that point, I I could no longer deny that I was attracted to women. Uh, And in, you know, in, it was the sort of thing as we were, as my former husband and I were going through this process, he's, it was the first person who said, you know, this, this kind of makes sense. And Mm. it, it did. Um, And so, you know, as hard as it was, I can't imagine what it would have been like if he had been angry or vindictive or in any way, all of the things that you would expect a human to be, but he was patient and loving, sad. We were both very sad um, and nurturing. And we went to divorce therapy for months, so we made sure that we were good to each other and we would figure it out. And it was really, it was one of the most generous acts I've ever been privy to. 
And then you did go to UNC Chapel Hill. Yes, I did. Tell us about that and what you were expecting to do there. Uh, well, I went in as an English major, and I came out as an English major. And I was still, for the first couple of years, very uh, internally separated from my education. And I loved reading. I loved the books. But I did not take advantage of the mentoring that I could have. You had to seek it out there. Big classes, big school. Um, but I had discovered, at that point, I had discovered long-distance cycling. And so I was a much happier person. I would ride my bike, you know, 30 or 40 miles six days a week. And so I was able to learn on my own in different ways. And then my junior year, I took a class uh, with a beautiful graduate student. And it was about contemporary Latin American politics. And I, for the first time, I started going to office hours and asking extra questions and asking for extra readings. And, and I took that class the same semester I took a US history since 1945 class. And it occurred to me that that connection occurred to me between everything in the world, between what's happening inside and outside the classroom, between U.S. history since 1945 and contemporary Latin American politics. That was a pretty mm. easy connection to figure out. Uh, but that was – it was a moment really of, of grief because I realized, holy cow, I could have been mm. engaged in learning in, in the traditional book classroom way the whole time. If, if I had only, if I had only whatever, you know, there were the, the whatever was yet to be formed. Um, yeah, but let me ask you about that, because to what extent, I mean, uh, so there are these kind of parallel tracks that aren't quite parallel. They look parallel early on, but ultimately they are, in fact, converging, right? And, th and now we're describing the moment when they've come together. And you're looking back saying, I was never, it was never that far apart. To what extent did you have to sort of be on that other track? In other words, spend all that time cycling, spend all that time in the woods to develop another way of seeing, a more holistic way of seeing, for you even to have brought together those sort of disparate ideas. No, oh, I think, yeah, I think that was crucial. And, and yeah. that was the, you know, the way that, that children's days are structured is that they get up, they go to school for six hours, and then they go run around. And, and I think for almost everybody, that, that's not the way that we work. I mean, in, in, for example, in the practice of yoga, you do asana, you do the active part first, and then that leads to breath work and meditation. And so it, I think that absolutely was, was foundational. It, was, it had to happen. Well, look, for most of human history, and still I think we're wired, the way it has worked for most of human history is that people do what they're doing to make a living in this community, and then you watch them as a child and you imitate them. And we're built to imitate, and that means picking up you know bundles of wood and starting fires and catching fish and whatever it is. So if you're built to watch people and imitate, then you're watching people write on a blackboard, and you'd be pretty good for that after 12 years, but maybe, <laughs> right. maybe not much else. Not to say that that's not a wonderful profession, yes. but not all of us should be trained to watch people wa right. write on a blackboard. Right, and, and, I, and I genuinely think David Abram is my favorite contemporary philosopher, and I, and I genuinely believe him when, I say, when, when he says that we're not just built to imitate humans. You know, we're built to imitate you know, all of these multiplicitous living and non-living forms Forms, all of the more than human world, and we, we impoverish ourselves mm. when we are only exposed to what is human, and then on top of that, what is abstracted.
Right. And and not not just to imitate because they're not to imitate because they are alien to us, something foreign that we would like to be a part of, but because we already sense it. We have a deep compassion and empathy because it is us. And we're trying yes. to how'd you get out there because you're in me? How do I how do I get that part of me back into me? Absolutely. Right? I mean Rilke wrote, What is the inner if not intensified sky? And that's right. you know, when you look at the distant horizons and, and you feel the distance, the emptiness, the the possibility in yourself, that's instructive. When did these this, these sort of philosophies and this theory of how this this wholeness I'll, I'll use wholeness you can change it if you want this coming together when did that occur to you had that been something that was rattling about this whole time as you're agitating against the sitting down or did it no, come to you later No I think the the thing that saved me from maybe going stark raving mad in my twenties uh, was discovering Pilgrim at Tinker Creek Annie Dillard and that was the she was really the first introduction that I had to this kind of hunger for knowledge and for these experiences in the more than human world. So you have to tell us what's going on in that book to to let us know what that, what grabbed Well, she, she, she just writes so passionately and powerfully about uh, being a pilgrim at this little creek. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was searching for, for ultimate meaning and, and purpose and wisdom by going outside and looking at grass yeah. and then reading about sedges and hedges and and uh, and and it was she in some ways became you know this model that of of possibility uh, you know, in an ultimate way, you know, in the way that, that Zeus and Hera were possibilities. I, I don't think that I'll, I have Annie Dillard in me, but, but you know, as, a, as an idol, she was, she was yeah. the perfect one. She was the first mentor. And you're still taking pictures at this time, right? So Obsessively. How, how, so talk about photography and, and how this is playing a part in your, in your evolution. Well, I think uh, photography allowed me to have the thing which our culture values maybe above all, which is, uh, David Abram calls it a mentally envisioned future. Mm. You know, that we're always mm. striving for this thing that comes out of our head. Uh, but to do the thing that he also prescribes, uh, which is to enter ever more deeply the sensorial present. So in order to take interesting photographs, I had to be completely present. In, and I was mm. photographing out in the, in the more than human world. I had to be completely present in that world. And especially if I wanted my photographs to not look like every other thing I saw, but to be a vehicle for discovery and revelation, I had to really immerse myself in this this way of being and seeing. And that, you know, that was powerful. It was a practice. It helped me. Uh, it helped life be worth living. And I think it helped me become a better person over time. And then I had this product so I could justify my existence. <laughs> yeah. You know, in, it's a big box world. I had this little box of the camera to say, you know, I'm worthwhile. But you talk about the future, sort of a way of envisioning the future by being present. Such a, such a subtle but radical difference in the way the very future-minded American consumer society is built, right? The future is all about American consumerism. But that is not rooted in the present at all. In fact, it's rooted in being dissatisfied with your now. Your now isn't good enough. Your face isn't good enough. Your phone isn't good enough, right? None of what you have is good enough. So that's the future. What a different sense of future than the one you're describing, which is to say a radical uh, in, uh, inhabiting the now. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And and it's it it was really an escape from loneliness hmm. in in powerful ways. I, I don't 
feel, no matter how alone I am, I have never felt lonely photographing or now later later in life, I can evoke that state without a camera in my hand. And, you know, suddenly I feel like I am not just one of many in this anonymous world trapped in this head, but, you know, part of this whole that it, it, I'm so lucky to be conscious of. Uh, and, you know, there are lots of other parts of the whole, and I don't know if they have yeah. consciousness as a property or not, but I have it, and I'm lucky. Also, you, you began to get really interested in fractals. Is that right? And, and so this is a fascinating part of the universe, these irregular shapes that, that in, in some ways uh, defy. We know how to define the area of a circle. It's nice and regular. But what about a coastline that dips in and out in its kind of crazy way? Sure. And yet it's a pattern, right? It's a pattern, yes. Yes, fractals are geometric patterns that are self-similar across scale. And, uh, and I didn't know what fractals were until much later, but I was obsessed by them. You know, rivers, rivulets, uh, patterned veins and leaves, your circ circulatory system is a fractal. Uh, and, you know, the, the world that we live in, our built environment is Euclidean. It's it's circles and boxes and squares. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think visually for me, uh, that was, uh, I could just see the different shapes of things. Classes and, and jobs and offices were all about squares. And, and right. the world that I really wanted to fully inhabit was not. It and, was, and and again, yeah. the paradox, irregular and yet patterned, right? Absolutely. And, and, and replicating itself in a way that's far less regular. So talk about the darkroom, because I know your first, ex your early experiences with the darkroom were also transformative. For oh, you. my goodness. Absolutely. Yes, it was It was a way to extend that moment, that meditative moment of being completely attentive. Uh, in, and I had photographed using slide film for a long time, and you, know, you would get the picture back, and it would be very nice to see your beautiful picture. But in the darkroom, room, you spent hours and hours and days uh, evoking from this negative uh, as much meaning and nuance as you possibly could. And it was hard. And it took me years to learn how to how to do that. And and the water is running in the background. And it was just, it was really a beautiful process for me. So you ended up teaching, not ended up, but at a certain point, you found yourself teaching at, at uh, Guilford College. How did you get there? Tell us that story. It was an accident. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a friend who was the photo teacher at Guilford College. And she was in the process of leaving, but couldn't leave yet because her father was ill. And she asked me to teach a class, just the photo one class in the fall. And, and I... Uh, the the department said yes. I think they would have never picked my resume out of a pile because I don't have a photography degree. Uh, but uh, but they let me teach this one class, and and it was August of two thousand and one. And and at that point, you know, I don't have any children. My whole life had been sort of neurotic Woody Allen monologue of Am I good enough? Are my <laughs> pictures good enough? It's all about me. Uh, and and then I was about to be a teacher, which I'd never thought about. It's like, am I are they going to like me? Am I going to be a good enough teacher? And uh, the it was the fifth. Day Day. I taught Tuesdays, Thursdays, and it was the fifth day of class, and it was Tuesday, September 11th, and, mm. and my television was on when that second plane hit that second tower, and I think maybe in the way that, that parents feel when they first fall in love with their children, I suddenly had this awareness that it was not about me, and I had to walk into that classroom at one. None of us knew what was going to happen next. I mean, this could have gone on in horrific ways, you know, that were equally as bad as, as that morning's events. And, you know, so I went in there and, and did what I didn't know how to do, which I think parents do over and over again, and I just fell in love. 
What was that? What do you mean did what I didn't know how to do? I, I learned how to be the elder in the room. Mm. Uh, I learned how to talk about apertures and shutter speeds without meaning apertures and shutter speeds. We were really talking about how to live. Mm. And you then began, this is when you begin developing classes around experiential learning about getting outside. Yeah, I mean, ph- photography lends itself to that, yeah. right? I mean, so from the beginning, I was taking people outside, but it took me a while uh, really uh, several years, three or four or five, I can't remember years before I really started taking students outside the classroom. Like not just we're going outside during class, mm. but we're going to go sleep outside and roll around in the sand for three days. Uh, and and then, you know, demanding that they not just go outside and take pictures, but Guilford, it's a place that allows for a lot of creativity. It's really a wonderful college. And, and I was able to develop these interdisciplinary classes that many of them writing intensive where they weren't just going outside to look. They were going outside to see the ways in which these very difficult texts overlapped with these immediate embodied experiences. And for every single person, that overlap is unique. It allows you an agency uh, in your learning, inside or outside of school, um, that that can be life-changing. You, but, but, but also, these kids are going out in the winter. They're going to January, and you're telling them, pack, pack wisely, children. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, yes. it's on you, right? It's on you. And, and this is, yeah, one of my, you know, any, anybody who works in any system for 17 years is going to have gripes. And one of my gripes is that they get three square a day, whether they do anything worthwhile or not. <laughs> and, uh, and somebody else does the dishes. And it's, it's very difficult to yeah. get them to take things seriously when the consequences for poor decision making are a grade. And so if you don't care about grades, then we've lost you. And so the consequences for poor decision-making when you're outside for three days in January are an altogether different matter. (laughs) I wanted you to get started with the story. I don't have enough time to finish this, but then at at a certain point, you decide to develop what would be the Cape Fear River Basin Studies Program. But tell, tell us first how that idea came to you or when it came to you. Well, it came to me after I had finally fulfilled my lifelong dream of learning to surf which happened for my 40th birthday. And I'm driving back and forth between Wilmington and and Greensboro every week so that I can surf and feeling for the first time in a long time like my life is a little bit disconnected. And passing these, you are now entering the Cape Fear River Basin uh, signs and realizing my life is not at all disconnected. This place where I'm surfing and this place where I'm teaching are part of this one whole. And the fact that I have lived in this river basin for my entire life since I was three years old and never thought in those terms is uh, is really something that I need to look at. And and it was it was revelatory. It was instructive. And you know the metaphor and fact of there being an upstream and a downstream in reality in ge- geographical geological reality and in a person's life is something that an 18-year-old can learn from and a 68-year-old can learn from we're listening back to a conversation with Maya Deary She's an educator, surfer, and photographer. She taught for nearly two decades at Guilford College in Greensboro and created Waves to Wisdom, a surf trip and coaching program that connects surfing with critical thinking and philosophy. Just ahead, we'll hear about the surfing economy and how surfing was rebranded as a primarily white male sport. This is The State of Things. I'm Frank Stacio with another listen to a conversation I had in 2018 with surfer, philosopher, and educator Maya Deary. I really appreciate Maya's approach to education, 
that includes making connections to the natural environment. I wanted to know more about the Cape Fear River Basin Studies program that we began to talk about in the previous segment. Well, it was a um, it's a it's a multi year program, and and it began when students would arrive. They'd come to school a week early, drop their bags, get on vans, and uh, they'd go with me and some other faculty members, and crucially, some upper class students who were farther downstream in their education. And they'd go to what we called surf camp, and they would have surf lessons in the morning. And then every afternoon, they would meet with various people who were confronting issues that impact the basin, from confined animal feeding operations uh, to, um, you know, coal ash has been a big issue. Um, And then we would really spend the rest of the semester looking at the connection between the joy and the, the abandon that they felt when they were surfing and the thoughts, the ideas, the challenges that they were exposed to in the afternoons. And the idea was that they could make these connections that had been so difficult for me. And then upper class students were challenged to apply their discipline, whether it was economics or physics or art, to the place where their education was unfolding in ways that could positively impact the place right now. So, but you, and so this is a, a, a social and economic connections that can be bound together by this concept of the river basin and understanding even ideas of privilege and who gets to do a trip like this and who doesn't get it and who gets to surf and who doesn't get to surf and all of that is is a little bit of the no absolutely oh no it's crucial and yeah. you know the the example of Duplin County is is a great one you know I I'd driven back and forth to the beach my whole life and and never really paid any attention to this county where du- Duplin and Sampson where all of these factory farms are located uh, and that was absolutely a product of me thinking where I live is one place and the beach is another place and not letting the watershed define my place and my zone of responsibility. So we talked about surfing and and you loved it as a kid, grandparents kind of keeping you away from the water, you want to do it, but not until you're 40 do you actually pursue this. You tell us about A, why it took so long and then B, how it how it was that you learned to surf? Well, a that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I don't know what was I thinking, um, uh, but I think as I was facing forty, I suddenly realized that that despite all of my expectations, I was like everybody else going to die someday, and I better think about what I wanted to do. And I didn't have to think very hard. It was really it was this eminence. It just came up out of me. You need to surf. And so I sent myself. I did research. I'm athletically the least gifted person that that uh, that I know of. Small, weak, not particularly adept. So I researched the easiest place to learn to surf, and I went there for surf camp for a week. And uh, and it was it was amazing. I think I stood up on two waves, one of which the instructor dragged me to my feet for because um, he <laughs> promised a picture of me standing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was hooked, and and just this is in Santa Cruz. This was in Santa Cruz. Yeah. Yes. So that's yes. nice because you're you're returning to because that's there's still hippies there. They've got like a hippie. I think that's all they've got. There. It's like a yes. wax museum, but actually, there it's <laughs> yes. them. It's they're not wax. They're oh really still there. Yes. Uh, and also, you're kind of among the older uh, surfers in that group, right? I, I, yes, I think the average age was, was twelve. The, the, the first night, I wound up with six or seven little homesick girls in my tent because <laughs> I was mom age. <laughs> yeah. But you did learn to surf, and then you embraced it, and then these trips to the North Carolina coast, and a suddenly a sudden awakening about the fact that this is not just a thing on the way, an obstacle to my surfing. This land in between, it's a real place, and so you start taking people there, and then you start doing surf trips uh, to Costa Rica. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, that was um, uh, 
the the it came out of a really a present a, the presentation of a problem. The, the Guilford had a January term for a while, and the first January term, I, I took students to Baldhead Island, and I couldn't get them to go outside because it was so cold. So I thought, oh, I have to take them somewhere warm, mm-hmm. and I, I need to. Uh, we need to surf just because I think it's going to be good for us, and we can learn some hard things. and And I had become obsessed with the history of surfing, uh, so I knew all of these books that were. Uh, really good windows into the way that surfing, like everything else, allows us to explore, you know, post-colonial dynamics and race, racial disparities and sexism and, you know, appropriation. And and so developed at first a class. Um, and then there was one semester long program where students learned to surf and then dealt with all of this difficult history and you know, I was able to ask them questions about what are you interested in and how can you apply it to this issue in ways that allow you to be able to envision a future for yourself. Take us into that world. Tell us about that history. Well, uh, you know, surfing, there's a lot we don't know about uh, the history of surfing, but some things that we do know are that the the Hawaiians were uh, surfers. It was something that they did, and uh, and the Hawaiian grandmas surfed, men surfed, women surfed, everybody did it. Uh, If the waves were good, everybody stopped work and went to them. And we know that there was surfing on the west coast of Africa in what is now Ghana. You played a a clip, I believe, from The Endless Summer, the music. And those uh, young men went in search of perfect waves. And and from that film, there is a line that they were the first people to surf in Ghana. We know for a fact that that is not true. And and so surfing was something that people of color all over. They, the white folks who went on The Endless Summer, Yes, yes. Robert August and and Michael Hinson. And and, um, the, you know, I mean, it was the movie was from 1964 is when they started filming it. So there was a product of its time. Um, but looking into that history, I think, is is uh, illustrative of, of the challenges that we face. And, you know, and then you look at surfers now and they're they're disproportionately white males. And it's, uh, um, you know, it's, it's a place that is a little bit slow, I think, that, that space, that social space. Well, talk space. about promoting surfing, too, as a sport, particularly in Hawaii, is, again, a way of whitewashing this thing that had been around forever and not necessarily the province of white men. Sure, yeah. Well, the history of Hawaii is, is you know, it, it's it's a, re- a repetition of a history that has unfolded over and over again. But, but there was a promoter, Alexander Hume Ford, uh, who thought that surfing would be a good way to promote tourism in Hawaii. And so he essentially rewrote the history and ignored the Hawaiians who were still surfing and uh, said that you know that Hawaii is a place where men and boys can can challenge nature and challenge the waves and um, and the he acknowledged that Hawaiians had surfed but essentially pretended like they were all gone and it was up to the white man to, to resurrect this noble sport yeah and it was going to be white men and again you get back to what it was and it was recreational and men women and children did it and they did it because they had actual spare time so Yes. I mean, one of the great things we tell ourselves about the current social and economic milieu in which we live is that we have so many more benefits and isn't it so much. And we're working 14 hours a day. Right. The people we've replaced in the lifestyles of, you know, working maybe six, seven hours a day and then surfing a little bit. Absolutely. Yes. No, I mean, that was uh, 
one of the things, of course, there was disease, which reduced the number of Hawaiians, so reduced the number of surfers. Um, but the introduction of wage labor was really problematic, and it interfered with their ability to surf. So what about, so now everybody's out to catch a wave, and then you're giving them all this hard news about, the, you know, oppression and some of our history and the way it works and the way we understand uh, surfing and the and this recreational sport. What's the what's the feedback you get? What 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 do you see happening with students who use surfing as a way to understand these bigger bigger questions? Well, one of the reasons that I took students to this little village of Nosara, Costa Rica, is that it's a place where development is just proceeding apace. But uh, the Americans who have, for the most part, driven that development, um, have not been an unmitigated force for bad. They've been, in in many ways, a force for good. And uh, and so it's it's a complicated place. And so it's not a hopeless place. Um, It's difficult to to introduce 20-year-olds to some of these histories without having them just get overwhelmed and, you know, want to disappear in the ways that 20-year-olds disappear. (laughs) Um, But there are, you know, there are people there working hard to try to figure out how do we do this better Mm -hmm. and so the students are engaged in that I've got one down there right now who's doing a sustainability internship with one of the hotels that's working very hard to try to be a better version of a tourist destination Great. And you recently created something called the Waves to Wisdom program. Tell us about that. Waves to Wisdom is uh, is a huge leap for me. Um, speaking of wage labor, uh, I'm not. <laughs> I, the last time I was in business for myself, there was no internet. So it, it's a um, it's it's an exciting and and somewhat frightening move. Uh, but I am really called, I have to say, I mean, there's no other word. I'm called to try to take these things that I have learned in this educational context and find ways to make them available to people with maybe a few more years on them um, who are engaged with the problems and the challenges and the promise of of how do we address all of the crises of this moment and how do we maintain a sense of joy and playfulness uh, and and immersion in the beauty of this moment which I think drives us I mean these this this immersion in love and beauty and caring is what makes all of the hard work of life worthwhile and I think surfing is an opportunity to do that it's it puts you in an environment where, regardless of your belief system, you are engaged with a higher power, and uh, and it's unpredictable and it demands your attention. For most of us, uh, it inspires at least periods of awe. We know we have research now. Recently, out of Stanford, we've got social scientists who are studying this, and you know, awe allows us to have these extended experiences of time where we feel like we have enough time uh, and it makes us more generous and there's nothing like being with a board and a huge oncoming wave uh, to put you in touch with your just native embodied creativity I got to figure this out. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah. it's probably a little bit scary, too. So you've got all kinds of emotions racing through you. It's thrilling. It's exciting. It's fun. It's meditative, I suppose, while you're waiting for that. Way. I've never Absolutely. done it, but I guess the, the sitting around waiting or lying around waiting part is meditative. And then, yeah, maybe a little bit of fear. All oh, yes. Yeah. Well, if you're not a little bit scared, you're not paying attention. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and you've created a podcast as well. Yes, I have. That That is so fun and inspiring for me. Um, so I essentially identify surfers who look to me 
like they have ocean-centered wisdom practices, and we go for a surf session or two over a couple of days, and then after the second session, we've got our blue minds on. Uh, we sit down and, and talk about their oceanic habits, about meaning and surfing and, and what it's taught them. Blue mind, is that a thing? Blue mind is a thing, yes. Uh, uh, Jay uh, Nichols wrote a book called Blue Mind about essentially your brain on water, what happens to us when we're in, on, near, or under the water. Well, we talked about the pod- podcast uh, that you launched through Waves to Wisdom, and I want to listen to a clip now with a conversation with a special ed teacher, Andrea Cabuasa. Surfing opens up your creative spirit and your creative mind, and teaching requires that you be creative for you to connect to the kids, especially kids with special needs. You, you know, to unlock them, you, you know, you got to show them that you're passionate about what you're doing and, and that you can see them. And surfing is, you know, it's funny. You can you, you paddle into a wave and try to remember if you've ever noticed the wave. Like, have you really looked at it? Like, when you're catching that wave and then you wipe out, I was like, did I even see the wave or was I just riding the wave, you know? That little change of reference where it's like, okay, I'm going to just, as I'm surfing, my goal is just to see the wave. Let's just look at it as it's moving. If you do that with students... Wow, things just change. That's a clip from longboard rider and special education teacher Andrea Cabuasa, and it's an excerpt from the Waves to Wisdom podcast, and I'm speaking with Waves to Wisdom creator Maya Maya Deary. What else stood out to you about that conversation you had? Oh, my goodness. She is such an inspiring person. Um, she was a Division One college basketball player, uh, and she um, is a painter, very accomplished painter. Um, she told a story um, about... Uh, really, Malibu, which is her home break, being uh, another city. It's a very crowded surf break. Uh, and about how the demands of that crowded space allowed her to learn more rapidly than she would have otherwise, just to avoid danger, um, just to avoid injury, just to avoid incident. And uh, and that was really fascinating to me. And, and I had an insight in the days that I was able to spend with her, which is she's a powerful athlete. And surfing is one of those activities in which somebody like me, not a powerful athlete, and somebody like Andrea Kabwasa can share this moment mm. and each be challenged and, and immersed and, uh, and, and together. And it was really, it was very beautiful and, and reminded me in a new way why I love it so much. Well, it strikes me too much. Having done some teaching way back in my past, uh, it, it, it was revelatory to me to stop fixing kids because that was the first thing. So again, if you're just trying to, if I'm here and you're there and, I, and your problem, your lack of education is my problem to be fixed, I had a very hard time until I connected with the child and mm. said, wait, where am I? St-? In other words, what she was saying about what is this wave? Am I even looking at this wave or am I just looking for ways to get out there and come back or get past, past Duplin County to get to the wave? Oh, my goodness. Totally. Yeah. In terms of, of uh, relating it to teaching, the I'll tell you that, that the, if there's any fixing, it's got to go both ways. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and the same is true. You know, the, a surfer alters the wave by riding it and, and the wave alters the surfer uh, through being ridden. And, and the, there's, you know, students are a force beyond your control. And, and it really, it, it does help to have the kind of fluidity uh, and, and balance and you know, just reactivity in a good way that you, that you need in order to, to be in a learning environment with anybody. 
especially students who are young. So what's next for you now? You've just, you've, you've just more, this is relatively new for you, this project. Yes. Uh, do you have other goals beyond this or are you... Well, it yes, we um, so we had our first Waves to Wisdom retreat uh, in in the summer in Costa Rica, and that was magical, so inspiring for me. Uh, and uh, and I've just started with private coaching clients, and that's wonderful. Um, so I'm hoping to do more retreats, and I'd really like to work with organizations and individuals on helping them figure out how these embodied experiences can apply to the challenges that they're facing. That was my conversation with Maya Deary, surfer, photographer, and educator. It's a program that first aired in June of 2018. You can catch more memorable conversations from the State of Things every Tuesday and Thursday at noon through the end of the year. And of course, you can find out more about the show at our website, stateofthings.org. North Carolina Public Radio is a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Frank Stacio.